coming up on Philosophy Talk. Do you agree that success in life is mostly determined by things outside of our control? Americans disagree with that statement vehemently. Does the way our language describes action influence how we think of it? The causal structure of the world looks nothing like what English wants it to look like. English speakers pay attention to who did it, even when it's accidental. Did Justin Timberlake rip off Janet Jackson's bodice, or did a wardrobe malfunction occur? Everyone can see what happened. Everyone should be able to remember the same thing. Everyone should describe it the same way, and that's just not what we find. Can our language really influence how we blame and punish people? Our guest is Stanford psychologist Lara Voroditsky. There's so many things to remember about any given event. Something has to tell you what to focus on, and language can do that. Who done it? The Language of Responsibility. Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in Berkeley. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence, I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Marsh Theater in Berkeley, California, the Bay Area's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is Who Done It? The language of responsibility. Now, by the language of responsibility, we mean the way we report events for which someone might be held responsible, that is, praised or blamed or punished. For example, in reporting a famous event witnessed by millions of Super Bowl fans on television, I might say Justin Timberlake ripped off Janet Jackson's blouse, revealing her naked uh, chest. You're describing an action for which Timberlake might be held responsible, and with him, CBS, for exposing the young, innocent Super Bowl watchers of the world to a naked breast. However, that's not the way Timberlake described it. He said that as he reached across Janet's blouse, a wardrobe malfunction occurred. <laughs> he described the same event, but without a person to hold responsible for opening the blouse. Now, presumably he thought that that made him sound less culpable, John. But millions of people saw it. They saw Timberlake reach across Janet Jackson's blouse, unclip something, her blouse fall open, and her breast be exposed. Even if that wasn't his intention, it's clear that he did it. Shakespeare said that a rose smells as sweet no matter what one calls it. Anyone who witnessed that Super Bowl moment should realize it was something Timberlake was responsible, no matter how it's described. But you know what, John? I hate to tell you this, that interestingly enough, Shakespeare was actually wrong. You could prove it empirically. Tell me more. So the, you, if you blindfold people and ask them to smell an aroma, what you call the aroma has a big effect on how pleasant they find it. If you call it a rose, they'll probably like it. If you call it just a flower, they'll like it, but not as much. If you say it's a plant, they'll like it even less, and on and on. Sounds like Shakespeare loses, Timberlake wins. Right. Now, suppose you show two group of people the same footage uh, uh, from the Super Bowl, and you say to Group A, you're going to see a video where Justin Timberlake reaches across the front of Janet Jackson's body, unfastens the snap, and tears part of the bodice. To the other group, you say, Timberlake reaches across the front of Jackson's body, 
a snap unfastens, and part of the bodice tears. So what would happen if you ask, was this Timberlake's fault? Should someone be fine? What do you think will happen? Well, I think what should happen is it shouldn't make any difference. Both groups see the same event. It's obvious that Timberlake did it, even if it wasn't what he meant to do. It wasn't just spontaneous bodice combustion, <laughs> right? The second description doesn't say that he didn't do it. It's like when President Reagan said about the Iran-Contra affair, mistakes were made. Well, if stakes were made, somebody made them. And if the bodice was torn, somebody tore it. But I suspect that what I think should happen isn't what you're going to tell me really happens. You got it right, John. The first group is much more likely to assign responsibility and level of fine, and a large one at that. And as I understand it, this is an aspect where there are actually differences among languages. You're right again, John. You're on fire. Suppose that we're eyewitnesses who think the bodice tearing was unintentional and accidental, a true wardrobe malfunction, as, as Timberlake put it. Okay. Well, in that case, especially in English, either description is still okay. But in a language like Spanish, the eyewitness who thinks it was an accident is much more likely to use uh, the bodice tor, a verb that avoids giving responsibility. And is that important? It, it's very important because the effect carries over to memory. Often, the way we describe things affects how we encode the memories of them. If we describe what happened without mentioning who did what to whom, we're much worse. We're much worse at remembering who was actually responsible. And people whose language prefer descriptions like the bodice tour, like in Spanish, are less likely to recall the responsible parties. Now, our, our guest will be here in a bit is Lara Boroditsky, one of our favorite guests, a psychologist. And of course, being a psychologist, she can prove these effects with many experiments. Lots of graphs, more statistics than you ever want to see, and all sorts of fascinating stuff like that. But you and I need to explain why this is philosophically interesting. Well, well, it's philosophically interesting because there's actually a whole series of conclusions we might draw from this work. For one, language seems to shape thought. Language seems to affect how we think of events, even when we're eyewitnesses. How it describes shapes how we think. And we, we might speculate even further. We might suppose that given the way the language of action and responsibility varies across languages and cultures, perhaps the very conception of responsibility does too. Maybe Puritanism can be traced to the way English makes us focus on the person who does something, even when these actions are unintentional and accidental. Well, look, John, let's not get carried away here. We better get some help from somebody who knows some real facts, the psychologist herself. That would be Lara Boroditsky, who will be joining us in a couple of minutes. And we want our live audience here at the Marsh to join us too. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, talks to someone who deals with responsibility and accountability in the prison system. She files this report. What if inmates could unlearn violence? What if, over a 20-week period, they could reverse the patterns of violence that have been ingrained over a lifetime? One man believes that by changing the way offenders talk about violence and responsibility, they can change their behavior and peacefully return to society. After a year, only 80% of the men who had gone through the program did not return to the program. So it was actually a turn the recidivism statistics upside down. Hamish Sinclair is the founder of Man Alive, a restorative justice program for men in jails around the San Francisco Bay Area. 
Man Alive is kind of like group therapy, facilitated by former violent offenders. It's the peer setting, I think, that really counts. We train the men coming into the class to learn how to teach other men how to stop their violence. Sinclair believes in order to transform whole neighborhoods, you have to start with individuals. We do it by addressing the belief system that drives the violence, which we call the male role belief system. And that's, uh, in short, Mr. B.S. First, men learn that they're part of a bigger, misogynistic society. Can we get some examples? What's some male role belief system you learn? Boys don't cry. Take it like a man. Women are supposed to do what I say. Why? Because I'm a man. Then, they discuss what landed them in jail. Uh, I've caught, like, armed robbery. I've had uh, assault with great bodily injuries. And um, I've shot, you know, a couple people. They learn to take responsibility for their actions. They work through situations that trigger violence and focus on alternatives. See, the only reason why I would come close to somebody is to check how close I can get, right? But not to stay there. I'd find out how close I can get to where, okay, he feels uncomfortable, let me step back, right, and make myself safe. Sinclair argues that when talking about violence, we tend to verbalize it in ways that allow us to skirt responsibility. The very word violence is a passive term, I do my violence. You never ever see people say, I violated you. Inmates are coached to own up to their actions. The program has its own vernacular. Fatal peril, for example, refers to that moment before a violent outburst, when you can either lose it or handle the situation another way. So who is my that moment man. really deadly to? My hit man. My it's image. deadly to your image, man. My it's image. not deadly to Tay yet. Yeah. But in that moment, it feels like my image dying, right? Yeah. Man Alive is part of a larger program, Resolve to Stop the Violence, or RSVP, that brings offenders back into society by working both with victims and the community. And they've had great results. If you take uh, any population of violent men, in jail or out of jail, does about 20% of them absolutely refuse to change. And, and we tend to want to get rid of them right away because there's 60% in the middle who'll go either way to change or not change. Hamish Sinclair hopes the small percentage of those who really want to change will lead the rest. But he's the first to admit it doesn't always work. A man who was an excellent senior advocate, was able to teach very well, got out of the program and went back onto speed and crack and actually killed his wife. There are more than 140,000 state prisoners in California. A court ruled recently that overcrowding is so bad, the state has to reduce the prison population by more than 30,000 over the next couple of years. Sinclair worries that if he doesn't show convicts how to deal with violence and reintegrate back into society, no one will. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.